Okay, well, let's take our Bibles and open up to the Gospel of Luke, and we'll be in chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, and this is appropriate since we are in the Christmas season. We're dealing with the birth of a, uh, a child in this chapter, but not Jesus. It will be the birth of John the Baptist, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, verses 57 to the end of the chapter. That's Luke 1. Verse 57 to the end of the chapter. Now last week we saw Mary's visit to Elizabeth. And Elizabeth uh, was filled with the Holy Spirit and gave an inspired prophecy. And then Mary in return responds in what is known as the Magnificat, where she begins to talk about uh, the Messiah that she's carrying and praising God. And this week we deal with the events surrounding the birth the circumcision and the naming of John the Baptist. And we're going to divide this section into two parts. Part 1 will cover verses 57 through 65. That deals with his birth. And then verses 67 to the end of the chapter deals with his father, Zacharias' prophecy. Now I left one verse out, and that's verse 66. And that's a transition verse. And if you look at verse 66... The people who are around surrounding the birth event uh, ask a question right in the middle of verse 66. John is born, and they ask this question. What kind of child will this be? And the remainder of the chapter will be answering that question. What kind of child is this that's being born? Evidently, they think there's going to be something very special about him. Okay, so let's look at the birth of John the Baptist, and we're going to look at his delivery first of all, verse 57. Look what it says. Now Elizabeth, now Elizabeth's full time, her nine months had passed, and she was ready to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. Now, remember the way I told you that Luke is laid out? Uh, first, Luke starts talking about John, then he talks about Jesus, he talks about John, he talks about Jesus. He goes back and forth for two or three chapters. You could actually read verse 25 of Luke 1 and skip to verse 57 without missing a beat. And I'd like you to turn back there and just show you how that can happen. Remember the angel Gabriel came and said, uh, you'll have great joy when this child is born. And then, if you look down at verse 24, it says, Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked upon me, watch this, to take away my reproach from amongst the people. <clears throat> because she was barren, that was looked upon as a disgrace. She says, he's looked upon me to take away my approach among the people. Now look at verse 57. You can jump there without skipping a beat. Now Mary's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. And when her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy, meaning her infertility was uh, reversed, they rejoiced with her, just as the angel had said. And so... <clears throat> God has reversed her infertility, and now she has a child even late in life. And it says they rejoice with her. Uh, there's some question of whether she stayed secluded the whole time. We know she hid herself for five months. 
she may have hid herself for the entire time. And suddenly she has a baby, the neighbors gather around, and they rejoice with her. Uh, and they say specifically in verse uh, 58 that the Lord has shown great mercy on her. Mercy is one of the themes of this chapter. We saw how Mary's Magnificat dealt with mercy, mercy, mercy. And here we see mercy is continued. And God's merciful to Elizabeth because she was barren and didn't have a child. And God is merciful or compassionate toward her. And he gives her a child. And the next event is verse 59. And so it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child. That was the Jewish custom. And they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. <coughs> now, I want you to notice the pronouns. They came to circumcise the child. They would have called him by his name, his father's name, Zacharias. Who are the they in this case? It's not, Mary, it's not Elizabeth, and it's not Zacharias. It's the relatives. If you look at the verse 58, you look at the context. When her neighbors and relatives heard, the Lord had shown great mercy to her. They rejoiced with her. So on the eighth day when they came to circumcise the child, they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No! See, the neighbors and the relatives are the ones who are pushing for the name Zacharias. Now, we don't even know why they wanted the name Zacharias, because that wasn't the Jewish custom. Jews usually didn't name their kids by the father's name. They usually gave them a different name. So we don't even know why they wanted that name. It may have been a Greek custom. We're just not sure at this point. But Mary says, no, verse 60, he shall be called John. That's the name the angel gave you back in verse 13. And you know what the name John means? God is merciful. God is gracious. And so we see that that theme is going to run throughout this entire section. Now look at verse 61. But they, that's the relatives and neighbors, said to her, there's no one among your family who is called by this name, meaning John. And so they made signs to his father, that's Zacharias, what he would have him called. Now remember, Zacharias has lost his speech. But not only that, not only is he mute, he can't hear. And so they have to sign to him, and they go... <laughs> so uh, they're trying to get sign language, and they want him to come up with it. In other words, they're not satis satisfied with Elizabeth's answer. <laughs> now they're going to drive a wedge between the husband and wife, which is sort of interesting. And they say, well, you should have, you're the man in the family. You should have the last word, of course... No man has the last word in his family. We all know that. <laughs> now look what he does in verse 63, which is very interesting. He asked for a writing tablet. That would have been a wood tablet overlaid or covered with wax. And they would have given him a wax tablet. Just like you had, maybe some of your grandkids got one of these for Christmas. You know the kind that has a little piece of film? Wax tablet with film and you write on it and then you lift it up and it goes away. Well this didn't have the film, it just had the wax and he would have had the stylus and he would have put into the wax the name that he would want. And so he asked for this kind of a tablet in verse 63 
and uh, he wrote saying, his name is John. And so they all marveled. That surprised, surprised the crowd. Now immediately, watch what happens. His, that's Zacharias's, mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he spoke praising God. Then fear came upon all who dwelt around them. And all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. In other words, it was the talk of the town. Now, the point is, is that God uh, loosens Zacharias' tongue, a miracle occurs, and the immediate result is that great fear. Do you see that in verse 16, 65? Then fear. Look, God loosed, then fear. God performs a miracle, the immediate result is fear. It becomes the talk of the town, but the immediate result is, it's an if-then type thing. The immediate result is fear. That's the reaction of a real miracle. You want to know when you see a real miracle? It'll scare you to death. Not like the kind you see on television. Commonplace, left and right. In fact, you, you channel surfing, you come across the Benny Hinn crusade, some miracle. You say, I don't want to watch it, I don't want to watch it, I love Lucy, and you switch. There's no, if that were a real miracle, you'd go, ah! Things become commonplace. Real miracles produce fear, real miracles produce awe, and you talk about it for months to come. And that's what the result was in this particular section. When God is in our midst in power, it's a frightening thing. Because you know you're standing on holy ground. You know God's visited. That's not commonplace. That's unusual. That's why it's a miracle. Otherwise it would be normal. It wouldn't be a miracle. Okay? Now look at verse 66. And all those who heard them, meaning the people talking about this situation, kept it in their heart. In other words, they pondered this thing. They guarded this thought. They thought about it over and over again. And... <coughs> They said, what kind of child will this be? In other words, who in the world is this kid? What's going on here? This kid must be special. He's going to be, it must be going to be used in some unbelievable way because they realized God was involved in this whole process. They said God showed mercy on her. They know God was involved in the work of Elizabeth's life. God loosened the tongue of Zacharias. God was involved in that as well. He was involved in this whole process, and so they conclude that God must going to, is going to be using this child in some special way. Now, Luke interjects something. Remember, Luke is the one that's writing this gospel. Look what he says at the end of verse 66. This is his, sort of his editorial comment. He wants to let the reader know something. He says, the people say, what kind of child will he be? Luke adds a little aside. And the hand of the Lord was with him. That's what kind of child he's going to be. He's going to be the kind of person where God's hand, that God's hand is upon. God will be present in his life. So that's part one. Now we come to part two of this section. We have Zacharias' prophecy. Now notice this, verse 67. Now his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Have we seen this statement before? Yes, we saw it back in verse 41 when Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit 
and began to prophesy. This is inspired speech. This is an inspired utterance. So we're going to divide his prophecy into two sections. The first section will be verses 68 through 75. That's the first part of his prophecy. You'll see why that's different than the second part. The second part of his prophecy will be verses 76 through 79. Okay, let's look at the first part. This is known as the Benedictus. The Benedictus. It's a Latin word. Uh, it comes from the first word of his prophecy in verse 68. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel. Not literally blessed, but more literally, praise be to God. And when the Latin Vulgate translated those that phrase, it uh, became Benedictus. Instead of blessed or praise be, it's Benedictus. And so this section has been known as the Benedictus. Okay? It's his benediction, his praise to the Lord. So look what he says. Now remember, he's prophesying. This is inspired or inspired utterance. Verse 68, he says, Praise be to the Lord God of Israel. Why praise God? For two reasons. Look at reason number one. Four in verse 68. See that? Because he has raised for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has visited and redeemed his people. When did God visit and redeem his people? First, in the Exodus. When the Hebrew children were enslaved to Pharaoh and imperial Egypt. God came down and he visited his people. And he redeemed them. He delivered them from slavery. And now, not only did that happen in the past, it's happening again. We know that John's name is God is merciful. We know God's hand is with him. That's what Luke just said. So God is visiting his people again. And he's going to visit his people for the purpose of redeeming them. Where is he going to redeem them? How is he going to redeem them? Now listen very carefully. Don't think in spiritual terms. Just as the Hebrews were enslaved or under Egyptian oppression, now they're under Roman oppression. Occupied troops fill their land. They can't move without having cameras on them, you know? We have Homeland Security cameras in a lot of the major cities, and you can't make a move without people knowing it. You don't realize that they're being watched, but I have good sources tell me that there are cameras in many places that you don't realize, and you're being watched. Now, we're not under oppression. Those cameras are for our own good. They're trying to find the crooks who are doing the bad things. But in Rome, the people were under oppression, and they couldn't move without permission from the military. So God is going to visit his people once again, and this time he's going to redeem them from the power of Rome. Now that word visit always includes a positive and a negative. For God's people, it's positive. They're going to be delivered. For Rome, they're going to be judged. And so that is always the case. When God visited his people in Egypt, Egypt was judged. They drowned in the Red Sea. His people, however, were delivered. Now there's a second reason to praise God. Not only has he visited and redeemed his people, look at verse 69. 
And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Not only in the past, but now. Raised up a horn of salvation for us. In the house of his servant, David. Now God's going to do something on behalf of us. Zechariah says. What's he going to do? Raise up a horn. Or what in the world is a horn? Well, whatever that horn is, it comes out of the house of David. So the horn is a person. It's going to be a new Davidic king. A Messiah. That word horn speaks of power. And it's used in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Daniel, as, uh, as strength. They're symbolized strength and power. There are animals that have horns and their strength and their powers and their horns like a rhinoceros. Not in their feet, not in their mouth, not in their speed. It's in their horn. And God is going to raise up a horn. He's going to raise up someone of great strength from the house of David. Another King David's going to come on the scene who's going to rule and is going to deliver the people. What's the basis for this deliverance? Look at verse 70. As he spoke. See, God of Israel is doing this. What's the basis? As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our what? Our enemies. Not the devil now, although Satan's behind all the powers of the world. But that we should be delivered or saved from our enemies, look at this, and from the hand of all who hate us. So here we see that this prophecy, which deals with being saved, is dealing with a political salvation, a political deliverance, a salvation from Rome's imperial powers. So often when we read these first few chapters and we see the word salvation, 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 we're always thinking of heaven, we're always thinking of spiritual salvation, and I think that's a mistake. When you really look at it and just read it for what it says, you see it. Now look at verse 72. To perform the mercy he promised. Notice there's that word mercy again. He promised this to our forefathers. And to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. God gave made a covenant with Abraham. He confirmed it with the forefathers, not only Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and others, reconfirmed that covenant, that he would deliver his people. And sure enough, he did. Abraham lived 400 years before the time of Moses. And the Jews were in bondage to Egypt, and guess what God did? He kept his covenant to Abraham, and he delivered the people. The Jews went into Assyrian captivity. They went into Babylonian captivity. They were under captivity of the Persians. They were in the captivity of Alexander the Great and the Egyptians. They were under the power of Antiochus Epiphany and the Syrians. And guess what? Every time, deliver, deliver, <laughs> deliver. That's what God does. He's a deliverer of his people. And so this is all confirmed. Now look at verse 74. To grant us, look at this. This is a, a goal. To grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear 
in holiness and righteousness before him in heaven. Is that what it said? No. He's going to deliver us so we can serve him. Look at this at the end of verse 75. In all the days of our lives. You see how this is very earthly? See, this is a very earthly, this is not an other than earthly prophecy. This is a prophecy that deals with being delivered from the Roman government and so that the people could be free to worship him. And God's going to be faithful to his covenant with Abraham and deliver his people. And he does that based on his mercy, it says. Verse 72, his mercy. Because he's good. Not because we're good, but because he's good. That's why he does it. Okay? So this is a prophecy, I believe, regarding the earth, but it's all called salvation. Okay? It's all called salvation. When we get to the end of this study, I'll explain that even more. So that's the first part of the prophecy. Okay, now let's look at the second part of the prophecy. It begins at verse 76. Verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. Now notice the switch in pronouns. This is how we know we're going into a second part of the prophecy. The first part of the prophecy, it deals with us, 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 us. But look at the second part of the prophecy, verse 76. And you, look at verse, end of verse 76. For you, see, you, 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 you. So there's a switch. And so we go into the second part of the prophecy. This part of the prophecy, and you, child, verse 76, will be called the prophet of the highest, answers the question in verse 66, what kind of child will this be? And here's the answer. You, child, will be the prophet of the highest. That's what kind of a child he'll be. God's hand will be with him. Does that make sense? So that's what Zacharias is saying by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You will be called the prophet of the highest. Verse 76. And here's his mission. For you will go before the face of the Lord, that's the highest, that's the highest God, for what purpose? To prepare his ways. Now this comes straight out of Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, where God says that he's going to send a prophet who will go before him to prepare the way of the people. And God, through the prophets, made a prediction that he would come to earth in some way and intercede on behalf of the people and deliver the people. And that's salvation. And that he would send a forerunner. A prophet who would go before him to prepare the way, to prepare the highway for the Lord's arrival. And We've dealt with that concept before. I don't think we need to go into all that. But when a king arrived in the town, he had forerunners who would go and clear out the highway so the king could come into the town without difficulty. Well, Zacharias is quoting that verse and he's applying it to this situation. God is our king, is coming, and he's going to visit us. And he needs someone to prepare the way for him. And John the Baptist is the one who's preparing the way for the Lord. Now, notice it's the Lord who's coming. We know that that is God. In Isaiah 40 and verse 3, it's God who's coming. In the context here, it's the highest who's coming. But we know in the Gospels 
Jesus is identified with the Lord, and John the Baptist is his forerunner. And therefore, when the apostles look at Jesus, as they write these books years after Jesus has died and has been resurrected, they realize that God was in Christ visiting the earth. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. And it will be by his coming that this deliverance, the deliverance from world powers, whatever they be, whether it's Egypt, Rome, or whatever world power, ultimately it's through Christ coming, God in Christ, that will produce this deliverance. And John the Baptist is going to be his forerunner. He's going to be the one who prepares the way. Look what else he's going to do. Verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation to his people. He's going to tell them about the deliverance that's to come. They're going to know about it because John's going to announce it. The Lord's coming. How do they know he's coming? Because John announces it. He's the forerunner. He's the announcer. He's the advance man. Who's When Billy Graham comes to a town, guess what he does? He has an advance man. He has a whole advance team. And they prepare for Billy Graham to come to a town and hold a crusade. And before he comes, everyone knows about it. Knowledge is just spread all around the city. John comes and he, he announces that deliverance is coming. The Messiah is coming. God's coming. Now, notice, notice something else. Notice the vehicle of this knowledge. To give knowledge, verse 77, of salvation and deliverance to his people by the remission of their sins. He announces it and they receive it, but only people really that receive it are those who are going to have their sins, are those who have their sins forgiven. He announces that the way one prepares for God's arrival is through forgiveness of sins. So that's what he's doing. He's announcing salvation to the people through the vehicle of remission of sins. And I want to show you how this is fulfilled. Okay? You just move over one page to chapter 3. John's message is one of repentance. He's calling people to repent that they might be prepared for the Lord's coming. Watch how he does it. That's the prediction that he'll do it. Here's when he actually does it in chapter 3. And we'll just pick up maybe at uh, verse 3. Chapter 3 and verse 3. And he went to all the region around about Jordan, this is John the Baptist, preaching a baptism of repentance. Look at this. For what? The remission of sins. See that? As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, that's Isaiah 40, verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, what? Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And so... How, do they, how are those people to prepare? By repenting of their sins and being baptized by John the Baptist. That's his mission. And then, of course, Jesus is going to come on the scene. <laughs> so Jesus prepares the way for the Lord's arrival and the arrival of God's kingdom. And uh, he's calling people to repent. Two things will happen. Some will repent and they'll be ready for the Messiah's coming. And others will not repent and they won't be ready for the Messiah's coming. They would rather live under the power of darkness, under the, in collusion with the kingdoms of Rome. And so there will be a clash between two kingdoms when John preaches and Jesus comes on the scene. 
the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world, and they will clash. Only those who have listened to John's message will be prepared for the arrival of the Messiah. Does that make sense? Okay, let's go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 78. 78. Through the tender mercies of our God. It's all going to be accomplished by God's mercy. He shouldn't forgive us of our sins. We shouldn't get a second chance, but God's the God of a second chance. He gives us his mercy. It's all through his, through his mercy. With which, now watch this statement, very interesting. Through the tender mercy of God, through which the day spring from on high has visited us. Now what in the world does that mean? Some translations don't have the word day spring. Some have morning star. Some of your translations may have uh, dawn. Some of your translations may have sunrise. Doesn't really matter. Okay. This is just a word that's describing the coming of God. Because notice, it says in verse 78, the day spring on high has visited us. But up in verse 68, who is it that's going to visit us? It's God who's going to visit us. So the day spring here is God. It's the one who is coming. The word translated day spring uh, is Anatole, from which we, we have Anatole Hotel. Anatole, which simply uh, can be translated morning star, sunrise, dawn. Guess what? A new day's dawning and God's coming and things are going to change. That's basically what John is saying here. But that day spring or that sunrise that's going to dawn upon the people, that's going to usher in a new age, is God visiting us, and he's visiting us in the person of Jesus, who will be Emmanuel with us. So it's God visiting us. Now look at verse 79. For what purpose? To give light. To give light to those who right now are sitting in darkness. To give light to those who sit in the shadow of death. Who is that that's sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death? That's the Jews. The ones who are being oppressed. And also the Romans. It's anybody who's living under darkness and living in the shadow of death with the threat of death over them. He's going to give light to those who are living in darkness and the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. Notice to guide our feet. You see that? That would be the Jews. That's why I believe that the ones who are in darkness at this point and the one who are in the shadow of death, he's referring to in this context as the Jews who are under Roman oppression. So the Jews who are under the rule of darkness controlled by Rome are to walk in a new way, a way of peace. Not Roman peace. Rome had a universal peace. But it was a peace that was wrought through military might. Messiah is going to bring a peace that's not brought through military might, but by just the opposite of laying down his life. Amen. Just the opposite of the way the world rulers conquer. World rulers conquer by defeating and killing others. Jesus conquers by laying down his own life and being defeated by others. But what looks like a defeat on Friday 
is a victory on Sunday when God raised him from the dead. And that brings a new day. And so, look at verse 8. That's the end of Zacharias' prophecy. And Luke tells us, and so that child, that John, he grew and became strong in spirit. Remember Dr. Hawkins today talked about, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. He grew not only physically, but he grew spiritually. And he was in the deserts until the day of his manifestation to Israel. And that's when he came on the scene preaching, repent and be baptized, and pointing the way to the Messiah. And that concludes Zacharias' prophecy. Now let me give you a lesson too. Now the most obvious thing after I think dealing with this text you're going to see is that you can't separate political salvation from spiritual salvation. They're part of the same package. And uh, as Christians we miss that. Salvation has to do with God's reign. Did Dr. Hawkins talk about God reigning? Did he talk about that this morning? God reigns from heaven, remember that? Salvation has to do with God's reign through Christ over the earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on what? Earth. Earth. And even ultimate salvation. Christ returns and we have a millennial kingdom on what? Earth. Earth. And when that happens, every political system is overturned. So never try to separate the spiritual from the political. When you do that, you get into a big, big, big mess. And we talk about, well, Jesus came just to save our souls and, and forgive us of our sins. Hey, they put forgiveness of sins, even linking to a, to a political system. So realize that it's much bigger than we've ever anticipated. Second of all, I want you to notice that uh, this happens exactly the way the prophet said it would happen. Messiah, John the Baptist came on the scene. Messiah came on the scene. He died, overthrew the powers of the world through his death. God raised him from the dead, proving that he, not Satan or the Roman government, had ultimate power and the final say in everything. And now here we are. And we're his kingdom citizens. We're representing his kingdom on earth right now. We are part of the kingdom right now. We are his ambassadors. We're the ones that should be out calling others to come into his kingdom, calling them to give their allegiance to King Jesus rather than the powers of this world. Amen. Whenever you're looking to this world for your solutions, you're in real trouble. When people look to Mrs. Bhutto to solve their problems in Pakistan, she's not around anymore. They had their hopes on the wrong person. They were hunting for deliverance, but guess where they were putting their hopes? On a party on a system, on a person. We need deliverance. We need deliverance from this world of sin that we're in. But our hopes cannot be on the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or that candidate or that candidate. We need to put our hope in King Jesus. And that's a mistake that many Christians make. We get our eyes on the wrong thing. And then finally, a practical point. God's intervention on behalf of an individual has corporate implications. Think about that. God's intervention on behalf of individuals has corporate implications. You never know how God's going to answer your prayer. They had been praying for a child, Elizabeth and Zacharias, for a long time, until finally she couldn't bear children anymore. They probably quit praying 
But God still answers it in a way they didn't expect after she was beyond childbearing years. You never know how God's going to answer your prayer. Amen. And you never know what his ultimate purpose is in answering your prayer. It may not just be to give you a child, but it may be to send forth the forerunner before the Messiah. When God answers your prayers, it's much bigger than your prayer being answered. He answers your prayers, but for his purposes. And his purposes is always much wider. It's for the kingdom of God's sake, not just for our sake. We'll pick up next week with the birth of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for a very important word. Help us to, uh, to get our focus right. Help us to realize that we can trust your promise. The promises that you made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and were fulfilled in Jesus are now for us and we are the beneficiaries of these promises. So help us, Lord, to realize that you are trustworthy. And that you do have everything in control. And 2,000 years ago, the back of the world powers was broken. And all things are becoming new, even now as we speak. And we know that because you've already raised Jesus from the dead. A new world has begun, and we're part of it. Help us to be faithful ambassadors for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.